Well, this morning is the unofficial opening of the Chafer Conference, and we have with us this morning a special speaker who is a keynote, one of the two key speakers in the conference, uh, Dr. Alan Ross. Now, Alan would like for us to just call him Alan. He is, I first met him, he would not remember this, but I was visiting a friend of mine, Randy Price, whom you all know. And I was visiting him at Dallas about two years before I started. Uh, Randy started before I did. And so I was able to go up there and attend a couple of classes. And so one of those classes was his uh, Hebrew class, in which uh, Alan was teaching. So I missed having him my first two years uh, as a student at Dallas because he was on sabbatical getting his second doctorate at uh, Cambridge in rabbinical theology, and so I had the opportunity to take some courses related to the Mishnah and rabbinical theology as well as Hebrew uh, with him when I was there for my master's. When I was back working on my doctorate, I took some, uh, audited some other courses with him. He has taught at Dallas Theological Seminary. He has taught at a couple of other seminaries along the way, and currently he teaches at Beeson Divinity School, which is in Birmingham, uh, Alabama. He has published a number of, of commentaries as well as a, a tremendous book on worship, which is the focus of our conference. So I'm going to ask Dr. Ross now to come up, and hopefully he has figured out how to get wired up with the microphone and everything, and then we will focus on the word. Thank you very much, Robbie, and thank you for the privilege of coming to speak to you today. I am sure that many of the passages we will be studying this week you have heard taught, and uh, this is one of the benefits of a conference where you can hear additional insights and ideas that you can extend your thinking a little bit more on some of these subjects. There is no way that having read a passage or heard a sermon on it that you have exhausted that material. Uh, there is too much in the text. Uh, I remember reading the account of famous theologian and a commentator, uh, Hodge, who wrote a commentary in the book of Romans. And uh, he taught for 50 years before he wrote the commentary because every time he got ready to write the commentary, he would find more things in Romans that he needed to add, and he'd go back and add them. And so it just kept going on and on. Finally, before he died, he wrote it, and we are grateful for that. We are going to be looking at Psalm 118 today, and I would invite you to look into your Bibles and follow through with me. But first, I would like to open in prayer, and then we can look at the text. Father, open our eyes so that we may see that those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. Help us to learn to trust your promises with greater confidence and greater hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you noticed in studying the Bible, and perhaps in spiritual life as well, in the life of the church, that very frequently the Lord waits until things couldn't be worse before he answers? He waits until the things become very difficult and almost hopeless. Uh, in our estimation. Sometimes that happens because we don't particularly pray enough and not, uh, not spending that much time in prayer leaves us perhaps wondering when is God going to answer. Sometimes he does that waiting whether we pray or not. In studying through the book of Exodus, you can see the Israelites, when they leave Goshen, and they come down to cross the sea. The sea is in front of them, the hills on each side of them, and the fast-approaching Egyptian army is right behind them. Well, they are far from praying. 
They are in panic mode. And they don't know what to do, and they begin to accuse Moses of leading them out there to kill them because there weren't enough graves in Egypt. You know the story. And all Moses can do is say, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. God often chooses to demonstrate his great power when the circumstances are most difficult, the odds seem to be against him, and uh, Time seems to be the darkest. And in those moments, God can do the most miraculous, the most spectacular things. It happens frequently in the Bible. It happens frequently in our spiritual lives. What we do is we try to keep on praying and keep hoping for God to do something. and, uh, And when he does it, we hope that we will remember to praise and thank him for it. Sometimes those fall through the cracks. Psalm 118 is one of these passages. I will have to set the stage a little bit for you for this particular passage because it comes out of just this kind of a circumstance. If you remember a bit of the history of Israel, when the Israelites in Judah had been so unfaithful to God and so wicked in the things they were doing, God sent them into captivity in Babylon. I'm sure you remember this. And when they went to Babylon, they had come to the conclusion that God had written them off, that he was no longer interested in delivering them. And the prophet has to come up and remind them, show me the bill of sales, show me the divorce. I didn't, div- I didn't abandon you, you abandoned me. And then others would say, well, the Lord our God was not able to destroy the God of the Babylonians, Marduk and all his cohorts. And God has to remind them, Marduk didn't get you into exile. I put you there. If I put you there, I can get you out. And so basically the people had to endure that captivity, and it looked to many of them like the promises were finished, their future as a nation was over, They had no concept of what God was going to do next until he did it. And what he did is he delivered them from the exile, brought them back to their land, reestablished them as the covenant people of God, enabled them to rebuild their temple and to start completely new in God's program. It was on that occasion that this psalm was written. I can't point to a little note at the beginning of the psalm that says this was written when they came back from the captivity. Only a few of the psalms will give you any little historical introduction. But the contents of this psalm only fit that experience. They do not fit anything else in the history of Israel. And I'll point that out to you as we go along. The other thing that's important to note about this psalm before we begin is that This is what we call a communal praise, a community thanksgiving. In other words, the nation is actually saying these words and praising God. You wouldn't catch that right off the bat to start with because it's written in the first person. And it sounds like one individual is giving thanks to God for this great deliverance. And one individual is giving great thanks to God, but he's doing it on behalf of the people. And he would be giving the praise and the congregation would be repeating the same things that he was saying because it is the nation that is praising God for their new beginning out of the disaster of the exile. I'll point out those clues as we go through so that you'll see he speaks on behalf of the people. He's not a king because, remember, they didn't have a king when they came back from the captivity. But he would be the Judean prince. He would be the one who would have been a king if they would have been back and had a king, but they don't, not not that way. Some of the kings stayed alive throughout the exile. They were in Babylon. They didn't survive. They didn't come back. But this would be the leader of the people. He would have been probably the heir to the throne, but he would never reign but he would be a spiritual leader and he would guide the people in their praise. And this psalm, a little unique because it's not just an ordinary praise psalm, 
It includes the ritual of the procession into the sanctuary to, to give the praise to God. There are about a half a dozen psalms that do that. This one does it so beautifully. So it is a praise psalm, and the nation is going to praise the Lord for bringing them back by his love and grace. All these praise psalms will have a similar motif, similar patterns. They will always begin with a general statement, I'm going to praise the Lord because. And then they will spend a lot of time explaining what was the reason for the answer to the prayer, what is the reason for my praise, what happened, basically, testimony. And then they will conclude with some lessons. But this one doesn't conclude with a lesson directly. It concludes with the service of the people going into the sanctuary. And therein will lie the lesson. The first few verses are what we call this call to praise, this introduction. And the words are very clear. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loyal love endures forever. And then there's different parts that are going to be said by the congregation. Let Israel say, his loyal love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron, those are the priests, let them say his loyal love endures forever. Let all those who fear the Lord, this would be Gentiles as well as Hebrews, let all of them who fear the Lord, true worshipers, say his loyal love endures forever. This is a call to praise. This is what he wants them to say. Actually, after the captivity, this was one of the major themes that the people would use. His loyal love endures forever. Your Bible may translate that a little differently. I'm sure you are aware of the translation difficulties with it. Some of your Bibles might translate it, His loving kindness endures forever. Others might say, His mercy endures forever. We simply do not have a good English word to use for this word. Let me just take you through my thinking on this that might help you understand our problem. This is a word that has three parts to it. First part is that God has made a covenant with his people. So it's a covenant word. It's not a salvation word. Secondly, God is going to be faithful to those people in keeping the covenant. And third, he's going to be faithful to keep the covenant because he loves them. So you've got covenant and faithfulness and love. We would like to have a word in English that does all that, but we don't. I choose to use his faithful, loyal love or his covenant love or love, anything like that that works. Loyal love is a good way to translate it. I'm sure you've heard the options before. What prompted them to say this, though? If you put it back in the situation, here are the people in captivity. They feel abandoned. They feel that it's overwhelming to them. There's no future with them for the people of God. And yet, all of a sudden, the Lord delivers them because he has a covenant with them, because he's faithful to his covenants, and because he loves them. And so this became a very common doxology for the people after the captivity. And you can understand this a little bit if you should read the parallel passage in Ezekiel, where God declares that he is going to bring the people back to the land. In chapter 36, he says, I'm not doing this because you people deserve it. Not at all. He says, everywhere you have gone, you have caused my name to stink in the earth. <laughs> he says, I'm doing this because I made a covenant promise. And I will keep that promise with my people. Even if they, re even if they become unfaithful, he will remain faithful for the simple reason he cannot deny himself. He will keep his promises. And so they are exclaiming very clearly in this particular beginning that God's faithful love endures always in spite of all circumstances or all situations that might suggest the opposite. His faithful love is always there. 
So then he decides next to tell us what gave rise to this, and he is going to stress a lot of things in this next section by repetition. That's one of the hallmarks of Hebrew poetry, repetition. Make sure that people get it. So he will say, beginning with the second part, where he will now describe what that loyal love did, it was a demonstration of the power of God over all the opposition in the world. He says, In my anguish I cried to the Lord. We can read the word I because that's what's in the text, but keep in mind it really means we, the faithful people of God, cried out to the Lord. But he puts it in the first person. He's leading the service. I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. Hebrew writers in the Psalms love to give the summary first. So the whole reason for the praise, I was in anguish, I prayed, he answered. I don't think you can say it any more simply than that. But that's what the next section is going to develop. His conclusion of that little statement is, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. And I will look on my enemies in triumph. Then he expands it. A lesson, a little important instruction for the congregation to remember. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Uh, They learned the hard way in Israel. If you recall the details of their demise back under the wars invading Jerusalem, rather than trusting the Lord, they turned to try to get some help from the prince of Egypt and other countries. Maybe they could hold off the Babylonians. Nothing could hold off the Babylonians because God was raising them up to destroy the country and to carry them into captivity. So they learned uh, you don't need to, you're not going to find any help if you trust princes. You have to trust the Lord. Uh, This is the most important part uh, of his lesson that they have learned. They now know this, but they learned it the hard way. So God is with them. God is helping. He brought them back. They've learned that it's best to trust the Lord. And then he explains a little bit of uh, what happened in the middle of this deliverance from the captivity, and he says it in a very strange way. He says, all the nations surrounded me. This is why it's not one person speaking. All the nations don't surround one guy. Uh, He means me, the nation of Israel. I'm the head. I'm the representative. So all these nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me and swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now, it sounds like God has enabled him to rise up and with great power and strength to uh, have a victory, a military victory over the Babylonians or whatever. But you know that didn't happen. Uh, They were in captivity and exile. And what happened is that the Lord raised up a king, Cyrus, the king of the Persians, and he sent them back to the land Uh, without a military fight, nothing there that would be uh, settled in combat. But here the psalmist says, I cut them off. It's very hard when I've been on a number of Bible translations, it's very hard to get a translation that's exact that um, people can understand. That's the dilemma. You want to make the translation perfectly correct, but you want to use words that they will understand and why they're chosen here. I can improve on the translation, and it's a word you'll perfectly understand, but you won't see how it fits here. He says, in the name of the Lord, I circumcised them. See, we know what it means, but then the question is, well, what does that mean here? He didn't give an actual ritual of physical circumcision to all of his enemies. That isn't what happened we have to go back a little bit further to Moses and understand that there is a meaning to circumcision 
which uh, was supposed to be understood by the ritual. If they didn't understand it, they missed the whole point of it. That's why Paul in Romans is saying a lot of people have been circumcised, but they're not believers. The circumcision didn't mean anything. Um, Got them into the family, but it had nothing to do with their faith. By circumcision, he's talking about a change of mind, getting rid of the old and identifying with the new. Look for a passage for a moment in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I think this will help you to understand how they understood this word in connection to the captivity. Listen to what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 30. He's promising that there's going to be a restoration to the land. And he said, um, if you look down about verse 3, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts." and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love the Lord uh, with all your heart and with all your soul, and live. Circumcision of the heart, putting away the old, focusing on the new, being separated to God. um, But circumcision of the heart is different than circumcision of the flesh. And so in Psalm 118, he feels comfortable because it's already there in Deuteronomy to use this. That in the name of the Lord, it wasn't, it wasn't this individual who was a very good evangelist and talked them into trusting the Lord. Not that at all. It was the Lord who changed the minds of the uh, people who were the captives. And they were willing to send the people back and to pay for the building of the temple. This is how God delivers. We read at the beginning that the Lord uh, is their helper. He fights for them. This is the basic idea. Remember in the story where Jacob is coming back from Uncle Laban's place, and he hears his brother with 400 men is coming to meet him. <laughs> He's not on good terms with his brother, if you recall. He fled his life to get away from him, and now here he comes, 400 men. And he prays very, very needed prayer for him. Lord, deliver me from the hand of my brother. And so he makes all kinds of false preparations. But when he finally meets Esau, what does Esau do? He runs up and hugs him and weeps and holds on to him and welcomes him back. God has fought for Jacob. God has changed the mind of Esau. This is the kind of way that God shows spectacular power. It's one thing to raise an army, and and David made this mistake, counting all his troops and boasting in how big of an army he had. That's one way, and God might bless that. But God, remember, he's always telling people something more is going to be learned here. Remember, he tells Gideon, you got way too many people, get rid of most of them. Because God's power is going to be demonstrated in the way he can change the minds and the hearts of people. He changed the hearts of the captors so that they sent the people back to the land, but he also had to change the hearts of the Israelites. So when they came back, it was not just, oh, we got set free, now we can go our... No, you got set free because now you're going to love and serve the Lord, and I'm preparing your heart to do that. So he is saying this is the great and astonishing victory. Who would have thought this? When you go into slavery, when you've been captured by enemy armies, when you've been exiled, and all of a sudden a king rises who sends you back with all of his blessings, um, and they go back, and as a result return to the land. So now he summarizes. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. 
He has become my salvation. And everybody in the congregation probably repeat the line and say it as well because they all had experienced this. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. Remember when they first came back from the captivity, they hadn't rebuilt the cities yet. They hadn't rebuilt all the ruins. So a lot of people dwelling in tents and settlements, and they're there, but they're shouting for joy and victory. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has severely chastened me, but he has not given me over to death. So his... The details of his praise, the Lord chastened the people, but he didn't allow allow them to be destroyed and uh, all killed. They were in captivity. But when they were in captivity, the Lord helped them and made their way to escape, and he did so by changing the minds of the captors and changing the hearts of the people so they would go back. And now they're back shouting and singing for praise in the land that was promised to them by the fathers. This is the reason he is saying his loyal love endures forever. We didn't do a thing to deserve this. We didn't make it happen. We didn't convince anybody to send us back. The Lord said, I'm raising up Cyrus, and he's going to be my servant, and he'll send you back. It's the power of the Lord. And so they are quite aware that God's loyal love is manifested through amazing power, amazing evidences and uh, miracles of victory and of deliverance. This is the way that God delights to act. And he makes it clear to the people that his power goes beyond what any enemy of Israel could ever say. His power is simply amazing and it is supernatural and he wants to demonstrate it in the greatest way. He keeps he keeps waiting and waiting before he destroys Pharaoh. He just keeps saying, wait, I'm going to show you. Wait, you're going to see something. Wait, this is coming. Finally at the sea, now you will see. Uh, he builds to that tension to show the greatest victory over the greatest enemies and the greatest bondage and persecution that he is the God of all the world. And he shows that very clearly. So his love is demonstrated by his power in giving the people the victory. But the power is going to inspire hope in the people. This happens quite a number of times in the Bible. And I'm sure you've come across it in your Bible studies that God does something really marvelous. He does something very amazing, very powerful. But he's not just doing it once to let you see what he did to the people at the flood or what he did to the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Every one of those events is a sign because Moses and the other who wrote the others who wrote the Old Testament, they're not just historians. They're not just uh, literary giants, which they are. They're prophets, and they will re- they will describe things that that God has done. But what He did didn't end there. He's got something bigger in mind. We call that in biblical studies typology, and I'm sure you're familiar with the word typology is a, is a kind of hidden prophecy. It's different than a direct prophecy where the prophet gets up and says, this is what's going to happen in the latter days. See, with a type or typology, you don't know it's prophetic until you have the fulfillment. The Israelites ate manna in the wilderness for 40 years and never once thought about Jesus. How could they? I mean, that comes later. He hasn't even come to this planet. This is all in the future. But then when Jesus gives his sermon... Your fathers ate man in the wilderness. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. Now the disciples and other believers could see where God was going with this. Not just a nice little event been tucked away in past history. It's, it's preparing people 
for what comes. It's the same with sacrifices. They made all the sacrifices, but they didn't quite know where they were going. They just knew God said, do this and trust me and I will take care of things. And so they kept making the sacrifices until finally when uh, Christ appears on the scene and John the Baptist, another prophet, announces, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God does that to prepare and to let people know that he's going to repeat this, but he's going to do it in a bigger way. Jesus himself says at the end of the age, it will be as in the days of Noah. So we're going to another judgment coming like that, but even greater. And so he is carrying it forward. This is the way the prophets and the apostles work with Scripture. And so you can see that God has more in mind with this, and you will see it when it comes to fulfillment, but they might not have seen it at the time that they were saying it or writing it. And yet when they, even in their experience, praise God for for the deliverance, it still, in their minds, creates in them the anticipation of something better that is coming. Let me illustrate it very simply with your prayer life. Uh, you might be ill or have been ill at some time, and you and other members of the church prayed that you would be restored to health. And uh, say the Lord answered your prayer and restored you to health. You praise God for that, but that praise should also include the hope there is coming a time when he will remove all weakness, all physical illness, all disease from me, and I'll never have to pray for that again because I'll be glorified. Or you might say at a time, confess sin, and you thank God for the provision of forgiveness and uh, praise him for his goodness and his grace But it also should quicken in your minds the hope. There is coming a day when I will be changed. I will be made like Christ. I will be glorified. There will be no more sin. Never again will I have to confess sin. And so I too am looking for greater experiences than simply being healed from a disease or having my uh, sins forgiven. And likewise, salvation. You trust the Lord. He forgives your sins. You receive the Holy Spirit. You're born into the family of God. But at the same time, you say, there's much more coming. And this should quicken my mind on what is yet ahead. So let me show you how the prophet who writes this passage does this. I think when we go through it, you'll realize we're on familiar ground here. Not familiar because you necessarily knew Psalm 118 by heart, but because you study the New Testament. Here's what he says. Now, here you're going to have to treat this as a bit of liturgy. Uh, Don't be afraid of the word liturgy. It just means the work of the people. So participation. There'll be these worshipers coming to the sanctuary. They'll say things. The priest will say things to them. The people will join So we start with the congregation under the leadership of this prince coming up to the holy place. Open for me the gates of righteousness. Those would be the gates to the temple precinct. Uh, They want to come into the presence of the Lord and praise. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. See, these are believers. This is not metaphorical for salvation. They, They are back. They want to praise the Lord, go to the sanctuary, And what they have to do at the gates is they have to receive admission. Now, that's not that they have to pay the price or buy a ticket or whatever, but should you go into the book of Chronicles in some detail, you would discover there were a lot of Levitical priests who were made gatekeepers. And they are not at the gate just to hand out bulletins and welcome you. They are there to see if you have the right to come into the presence of God and eat with God. And so you get these little exchanges at the gate. The worshiper would say, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And the gatekeeper would answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
hasn't sinned and hasn't wanted to, you can go in and eat with God. You say, well, who in the world could say that? Nobody. Because the liturgy at the gate was to remind the people, you better bring a sacrifice because you are not able on your own merits to sit down at table with the Lord. So you go get a sacrifice and come in. And other times they would be more elaborate. They'd make a whole list of things. Did you do this, this, and this? But here, it's uh, the gates of righteousness. The people who enter are supposed to be the righteous. And how are they going to demonstrate that they are the righteous people? Uh, Well, they can claim that the Lord has answered their prayer, the Lord has delivered them, the Lord has brought them back here, and they are here faithfully to give praise to God for his wonderful deliverance. And so I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. And the priest would answer, This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous ones enter. And the leader then would pick up on behalf of the people, I will give you thanks for you answered me. And you have become my salvation. So they are there to praise the Lord for the great deliverance he gave them by bringing them back from the captivity and now coming to the sanctuary, praising the Lord in that place. And next he will give the praise, what he wants to say when he goes into the sanctuary. He says, uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's what he wants to say. The Hebrews, when you read the book of Psalms, you see this quite frequently. They rehearse what they want to say in praise before they go into the sanctuary. And so he is saying these words to give the essence of explaining the nature of the deliverance that they want to praise the Lord for. Now, we've got to unpack this a little bit so you know what he's saying. He uses the image of the stone. If you study post-exilic literature, Psalm 118, um, Zechariah 3, Daniel 2, they're constantly going to be referring to a stone, which becomes a big symbol for the Messiah or the Davidic king and the faithful congregation. And so the king or whoever was in charge, he represents the congregation. And this would be then the people of Israel. Now, who are the builders? The builders in the context of the psalm would be the Babylonians or the Assyrians, any of those superpowers of the world that built empires by enslaving smaller puppet states. When they came to Judah, the builders, the Babylonians, they didn't come into the land of Israel just to destroy Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, They got drawn into the war because the king of Judah went out to fight them, and this was a bad mistake, so they mopped up Judah in the way down to Egypt. But they didn't see Judah as a significant contribution to their empire building. It's like a builder. He's building this wall, and he picks up a stone and can't fit it in anywhere. It doesn't seem to be value, so he throws it away. And um, here's Judah. Well, we'll take them along. There might be somebody in there that we can use. <laughs> their mistake. Uh, when you've got Daniel and Ezekiel and people like that who went into captivity. But they rejected Judah. It would wipe it out, destroy the city, loot the temple. It's nothing. So these empire builders rejected Judah as any substantial kingdom or enterprise that was available. So they rejected it. But now he is saying that stone has become the capstone. In other words, Judah is back. The Judean prince who's leading them is back. They have just built the temple again. That's back. And all of a sudden, this this little people of Judah with their king and the lineage to the king, that's going to be the centerpiece of God's universal kingdom. The nations didn't see it. They wrote him off. They, they rejected 
But all of a sudden, this marvelous thing has happened. That's what he described in the first part. The Lord changed their minds. The Lord sent them back, and they're no longer an enslaved small group of people. Now they are at the center of God's new program. And all he can say is, this is the Lord's doing. We couldn't have done that. He did it. And when he says, this is the day the Lord has made, I don't, it doesn't bother me if you get up in the morning, the sun's shining, and you sing that. That's not what it means here. It means this is the day of deliverance. He brought us back here, and this this is what we're rejoicing in, that we now have a new beginning as the people of God. We have a new start under the blessing of God, and now we are settled in the land again as his covenant people because his loyal love endures forever. You have to go forward now, a few hundred years, and uh, see that uh, Jesus uh, is going to expound this passage. Um, It happens on Wednesday of what we call Holy Week. Triumphal entry, last weekend, middle of the week there's all this teaching, Thursday night, the upper room, Friday the crucifixion, but on Wednesday, he's doing a lot of teachings. And he raises, as he does in his teachings, (laughs) kind of an insult to some of these people who memorize the Bible. Have you never read (laughs) the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? And what does Jesus say that means? Because of your sins, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to a people who are going to bear fruit. What Jesus is doing is applying, and this is typical uh, Jewish hermeneutics, you're seeing the correlation, you're making an analogy between the passages. But he can do this because he knows what was meant by the original psalm. It fit that occasion, but it was intended for this occasion. Who are the builders in Jesus' day? The Romans, the Pharisees, chief priests, scribes. What did they all do that they only agreed on? Only one thing they would all agree on, get rid of Jesus. So they rejected the one who was the promised stone. This is the stone Daniel said was cut out of the mountain and became a great kingdom. This is that precious stone Zechariah talks about, which is going to be the source of salvation. This is the Messiah, and he represents his messianic kingdom. And who rejects him? All the leaders who are building what they thought was a wonderful state of Judea under the governance of Rome. And so they rejected him. And by rejection, you have to include in that meaning, they rejected him, they crucified him, they buried him. Complete rejection, they thought. But now all of a sudden he's back. (laughs) He's the head of the corner. And so really, this is anticipating the results of the crucifixion, that is, the resurrection and the inauguration being brought into full force by the work of Christ. He dies on the cross where he seals with his blood the new covenant which he has begun to fulfill. But it won't be until he sends the Holy Spirit that you get this new new program fully functioning. And uh, Christ is going to be the head of that called the church and the one that they rejected. And all of a sudden, the covenant is being fulfilled. And it's all being done not because we deserved it or anybody else deserved it, but because it was in God's promises. It was his plan. And so celebrating this for the, uh, for the great victory that it was, that he rose from the dead because of our justification. Uh, That's the way I would read the end of Romans chapter 4. Um, we're justified by his crucifixion. The resurrection proved it, that he is who he said he was, and he did what he said he was going to do. And so a new program, a new beginning... So where's the Roman Empire? Where's the Pharisees? Where are the chief priests? Where are the Sadducees? They're gone. But where is Christ and his kingdom? It's flourishing in still in a wicked and evil world because it's a new program.
So now that's the praise they want to give. Now it's time to process into the sanctuary with this procession. And uh, they will start off with a prayer. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. He has delivered us, but they want to see the thing fully done. Um, We can say the Lord has saved me, or he has saved us, but we are looking forward to the time when he will complete that. And so sometimes we will say the same prayer, not because we're not already believers, but because he has not yet completed our salvation. I know it's a little early Sunday morning, but let me give you some Hebrew here just so you can identify with what's going on here. Oh, Lord, save us in Hebrew. That would be Hoshiana. And put into Greek, that is Hosanna. And we can pray, Hosanna in the highest. Save us to the uttermost. Finish what you have done. So that's their cry. Uh, Lord, save us. Grant us a success. Then the priests will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we, that is the priests, bless you. Now see, this got changed a little bit in the in the New Testament times as well. Because in the psalm, the priests are blessing the worshipers who are coming into the sanctuary. The followers of Jesus knew that he was much more than a worship leader. Remember the story with Mary and Martha at the raising of Lazarus just before, about a month before the triumphal entry. And Jesus wants to know, do you believe that, you know, I can do all of this? You know, the questions in that passage. And her answer is so typical, we know and believe you are the coming one. And so what happens at the triumphal entry? Uh, The people, not the priests, are blessing Christ as the one who is coming into the world as the true Messiah. And they cry out for the Lord to deliver them and to save them. Why would they automatically go to this passage to do that? Well, we know from our knowledge of the first century, and especially in synagogue worship and among the Jewish people, that they had certain psalms designated for certain times, just like you have in a hymn book. These are Easter songs, these are Christmas songs, whatever. They have a collection, Psalms 113 to 118, which were to be sung at the Passover. And when they're singing this song at the Passover, um, usually at a Passover meal, they would sing Psalms 113 through 116 before the meal, and then after the meal, they would sing Psalm 117, the little short one, and Psalm 118. So these people coming up to Jerusalem for Passover are very familiar with this psalm. They know the words of their Passover hymns. And when they believe in Christ, they know that he is the one who is coming into the world. And he is the capstone of this new creation. He is the one who is building the kingdom of God. And so they will automatically celebrate. So that happens at the beginning of the week at the triumphal entry. The people will cry out, Hosanna, and they will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A couple of days later... On the mountain, Jesus will start teaching, and he teaches this psalm because it's one of their Passover psalms, and they know it, so he explains it to them. And there's one other place in the New Testament that this is referred to, which we usually miss. Remember at Holy Communion in the upper room, the Last Supper, Matthew simply says, they sang a hymn and went out to the garden. And according to what they did at Passover, it would be this psalm. So they have the Passover meal. Jesus has instituted the new covenant, gave the new words over the cup and over the and the bread, and uh, then they are going to go to Gethsemane. And on the way to Gethsemane, they are thinking in terms of the builders have rejected this one, and he has become the head of the new program, and he is the one coming into the world. And look at how the psalm psalm will end. This is so important for ending, knowing this translation, because this follows the Hebrew. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the sacrifice with cords 
to the horns of the altar. That's what they're singing when they're heading for Gethsemane. And Christ is going to become the sacrifice. Some Bibles have changed that and translated it according to the Greek Old Testament. But nobody in the first century in Judaism would sing Greek songs at a Passover or say Greek words at a Passover. No, they're using what the Hebrew says. So the disciples know that he is going to be rejected and he's going to begin a new program thanks to the resurrection and that uh, they are going to be privileged to praise his name. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they will continue to pray that he will save them to the uttermost, but they first have to head to Gethsemane, where they will be ready for the binding of this sacrifice to the altar. And that's where the drama becomes very rich and very full for the Gospels. They praised the Lord for the great deliverance. But even in their words, they may not understood at all, there was hope for something more. Yes, he has saved us. Save us to the uttermost. Yes, something else has to happen. We've been set free from Babylon, but we're, we're going to become this great and glorious kingdom of God. And so they are looking ahead. And they don't know exactly what they're looking for at the time, but Christ steps in and, and he lets us know, it is I That's the one you've been looking for, and this is what will happen in the future, and it's in process. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself in all of these examples and situations in history, and we fully understand now how the scriptures were a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, and now we understand and see the plan of God spanning across the ages of what was going to be fulfilled. We're thankful, Father, that we have this witness to who the Lord is and what he has done for us. For that we praise him, but for that we also hope for the fulfillment of all the promises. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.